0: Welcome to this very special bonus episode of Beyond the Pass. I'm Rachel Kerlapsley, the head of operations at Kelly's Cause. And to celebrate our second birthday, we are turning the mic on our host and founder, Toby Anna Dirk. Are you nervous? Are you excited? I'm excited. Why would I be nervous to talk to you? I don't know. You don't know what my questions are. Oh, God. <laughs> I mean, why don't you tell me your favorite flavor of ice cream, your least favorite place to eat in London, and your dad's middle name?
1: Uh, my favourite flavour of ice cream is mint choc chip. But, like, I really, like, I want fake mint choc chip. I don't want real mint choc chip. I want, like, as fake green as possible. Um, my, my least favourite place to eat in London, um, God, I don't know. There was a a restaurant recently that I went to and I'm not going to name because I don't want to publicly shame them, but I got really, really terrible food poisoning that made me sick for like months from. So I probably I'll go with that. Can you imagine if that wasn't your least favorite place to eat in London? (laughs) If there was somewhere else you wanted to eat less? Where else could it possibly be? No, it's definitely that place. And shame because it was really tasty, but.
0: Um, Do you feel comfortable sharing your dad's middle name just for the curiosity of the listener?
1: He doesn't have one.
0: He has no middle name and you have two first names. He
1: has no middle name and I have two first names and a middle name. It's like he
0: grew up without a middle name and he was like, I'm not going to do this to my kid. And I'm so nervous about them going through what I went through as having no middle name that I'm going to give my kid three (laughs) names. That's cool. Parenting. It seems confusing. (laughs) Um, But so obviously, um, you're an Aussie girl. You grew up in Perth. And... As some folks might not know, you did a bachelor of psychology in Australia before you came to London to train as a chef. What did you want to be when you were six and why did you do a degree in psychology?
1: Um, When I was six, I wanted to be a marine biologist. Um... And then I did this, like, we called it PIAC, which was, like, a program that you did if you were, like, kind of smarter than average. They just sent you to do these, like, extracurricular things. And one that I went to do was at the aquarium, Aqua, for any people who've been to Perth. Highly recommend. It's amazing. You go in this, like, glass tunnel and uh, all of the, like, sharks and the stingrays and stuff are swimming over the top of you. Um, It's also what I imagined the like channel tunnel to be like the first time I went from London to Paris and then was severely disappointed. Yeah, you had to lower your expectations big time. <laughs> and then I did my PIAC thing at the aquarium and we had to dissect a fish and I threw up. So that was when I gave up my career as a marine biologist.
0: And did was the next activity you had to do for this special class, uh, go see a therapist? And then you were like, I'll do that instead.
1: <laughs> no, but it should have been.
0: But how did you decide on that? Were you just like, I'm good at math and want to know how my parents ruined me?
1: Um, I just like did psychology when I was in high school and it was the only thing I found interesting that I could do at uni. And I just felt like I had to go to uni because there was nothing else to do. But like, I kind of just, well, I guess I didn't really waste four years because I guess I'm kind of using my degree now. But then when I finished my degree and was like, no, I'm going to go and be a chef. I was like, well, I could have just done this four years ago. But I guess it all – it's all like I'm, I'm using all of it now. So it was worth it.
0: More and more often I feel like – and definitely not always, but there's definitely a bunch of like high-profile chefs that I really admire and like Asma Khan is one. And who's the woman that opened the gray in Savannah in the States? What's her name? Do you remember? I mean I don't really know that much about a chef. So when I'm inspired by a chef it's usually because I had an episode of Chef's Table because that's just who I am. But She's amazing, but she also like, I forget what her, her degree might have also been in psych or business or something. And obviously like Asma Khan is like a legal genius who like got a PhD. And I think it's so curious about how like, perhaps like the confines of academia are being trapped in those worlds, how people get out of them and they're like, fuck, I just want to like work with my hands and sweat.
1: Yeah. I mean, there's loads of people who go into food and whether they go into being chefs or like working in other areas of food or hospitality who have had another career and just gone, cool. Like I like cooking. I'm going to turn that into my career and then probably become a chef and being like, what the fuck have I done?
0: (laughs) Is that what happened to you? (laughs)
1: Uh, No, I still loved, like I still loved being a chef. Like I I didn't leave, like if I didn't like hadn't started Kelly's cause I would probably still be working full time as a chef but I just was doing both at the same time and realized it was not feasible to be the head chef of a quite busy restaurant and also trying to start a foundation I wasn't practicing anything I was preaching
0: yeah that would be impossible um what do you miss most about being behind the pass
1: um i think like the instant gratification that you get And this is a conversation that you and I have had a bit recently, Rach, where we've been like, when you work in hospitality, you get that immediate feedback. So you know, like, if a dish you've sent out is is great or hasn't quite hit the mark, and you know if you're working on the floor that if the customer's having a great time or if they're not. So you get that, like, immediate feedback. You know how you're doing. You get that instant gratification. Like, I worked in, like, quite an open kitchen, and we always used to have people coming up to the pass as they were walking out the door to be like thank you so much for dinner, like the food was amazing, thank you. And that kind of like instant feedback was really good, Um, whereas now I think a little bit we don't get that as much in what we do. We do when when we do training and stuff like that, but there's a lot of like hard slog where we don't necessarily get that instant feedback. And I think the other thing that I miss the most is just that like, it's so lame and everybody says it, but that like sense of camaraderie that you get when you work in hospitality Um, and when you're working with people you know a fun and funny and a nice to hang around with and you get along with then it does make the like really long days worth it
0: it also like it occupies so much space in your life and there can be something kind of relaxing about that like I don't know how anyone went through their 20s if they had any kind of like mental health issues or like self-destructive tendencies I have no idea how people went through that if they worked a nine-to-five like I'm not being funny when i feel like i might be dead because like you just have so much time to like self-destruct and self-loathe and like try and figure out like all the weird things about your body and your identity that happens when you're young and working in restaurants occupies so much space and when you're not actually there you're exhausted from being there and it's interesting because obviously it can be and we hear it all the time in training like often a conduit for like really unhealthy behaviors and patterns but i think in a way it also provides a sense of stability and grants like a really intense structure i mean it's li- i mean jobs in the kitchen are like named after the military like the really structured work environment right and it yeah it grants something where it also takes something away and i think that's interesting and i think about it quite often i want to hear about the worst kitchen job you ever had and then your favorite one also
1: well, like I basically only really had two proper chef jobs um, before I started doing Kelly's Cause full time. I was like lucky, and that I worked in both of them for quite a while. Um, one of them, the first one I had, I'm not I'm not going to name the restaurant. Um, <clears throat> there were a high, very high highs, and also just some absolutely ridiculous things that happened. But that was definitely the worst, mostly because the owners of the restaurant were just such assholes it was honestly unbelievable um i think uh like i loved i loved my time at cricket like they are really really great at looking after their staff in general and it's a really great place to work and that's kind of highlighted by the fact that they have managed to retain a lot of staff particularly those in like management roles for a really long time so i started at cricket in like february 20 20- 2018 2017 or 20, 2018 it must have been um and there are still loads of people who were working there then who are still working now um and it was just yeah especially when I first started and they only had Soho and it was just like a grew from being like about 25 staff to 75 staff in quite a short period of time but they still managed to maintain that kind of sense of everybody really knowing each other and really kind of looking after everybody I mean there's definitely things that they could do to improve as every place could like let's not pretend that anywhere in hospitality is doing everything perfectly Um, but it was really really fun place to work.
0: I want you to touch on like one or two people that you just really loved working for and made a difference to your mental health while you were in that job
1: and also your general
0: like spirit.
1: Um, I was really lucky that in my first chef job that I worked in my exec chef was one of my teachers from Cordon Bleu, so he left to be the chef there and then when I finished had offered me a job and working with him was just amazing because I felt like I was still learning well I, he's still like my mentor now and teaches me so much but not just about cooking and about being in the kitchen and stuff like that but he was like just such a big emotional support to me at the time that I worked in that job was like quite a tough time and I would like call him crying and he'd be like super supportive and like just so amazing. So he was just like the best and is still the best. Um, he just moved. to. Do you conference. want to
0: give him a shout out by name? Should we shout
1: him out? Well, I just call him chef. So like, <laughs> that's what I always know him as. Like, every, like I, I, every time I've like, he's like met friends or something like that and I call him chef, they're like, that's so weird. And I'm like, yeah, but you don't understand. One of my friends came came to visit me here when I was at Cordon Bleu and she was like, it's so weird how you all just call each other chef. Like, are you part of a cult? And I was like, mm, not quite, but nearly because it basically is a cult. Um, But his name is Daniel and he is just like, yeah, he's the best. I feel super lucky to have, Um, someone who is a mentor within hospitality, because I feel like it's something that we sometimes lack within the industry and like mentorship is really helpful.
0: But I think you touched on a really interesting point. Outside of sort of natural working relationships, there isn't really a concept of mentorship. And certainly whenever I was in positions in restaurants where they knew that I was good and they promoted me like into management or whatever, I didn't even know what the jobs were, to be honest. Like after like the manager of the restaurant, in terms of operations or people, people, or people, people, head of people, people.
1: People, people, you know what I'm,
0: people people, 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 the people, people, Um, like in terms of people teams or even marketing perspectives or like how the structure of the industry actually worked and what jobs were available, no one ever tells you what those things are. And nobody's ever like, hey, this could be, if you wanna grow this into a career, this could be a direction to go and here's an amazing person doing that job and let me hook you up. Because I think that there's so, there's such a staff shortage, but even beyond what's happening right now, which is pretty exceptional in general, it's so hard to find good staff. I'd work at restaurants with staffs of, you know, there'd be 20 people that worked front of house and five of them would be consistently great. And it's like, I think, Folks are so scared to lose people that they really don't promote that kind of mentorship or that kind of movement. They want to keep them on their teams because it's so hard to staff, which I completely understand. And as a manager, I would have a similar impulse, but it's also a real pity because I think and it happens in kitchens also where it's like if people burn out or they get tired, they leave the industry. Because they don't understand that they can stay in the industry and totally change gears. And this idea that if I build my career here, it means that I'm going to be working 60 hours a week on the floor until I'm 50. And then I'm probably just going to die or my knees are going to like fall off. That sense of longevity or growth in other positions is totally null and void.
1: Yeah. And I think that I was having a brunch with a friend the other day and she was saying like how people stay in jobs that they they hate and are miserable in and are working ridiculous hours and and not being paid enough and all of these things and she was like it's because they think it's going to be the same everywhere that they go and I was like but it's not it's not the same everywhere that you go it's so it's different everywhere and also there are so many places that are doing it much better than others and this was also something we um I had a chat with Asma Khan this week, which was like, honestly, the highlight of my whole life. Um, but it, it, she was saying, and one of the questions that I asked her was about, um, like, how she manages to have an all-female kitchen and what what she does to help women into the industry, but in particular mothers. And I, she said, you know, like, she, they've had like three or four, like, Darjeeling babies. And I was like, that's so nice, because I just always thought that, if I wanted to have kids, that I would have to leave the industry. I never have ever had envisioned a future where I could be a full-time chef and also be a mom or even be a part-time chef and be a mom because I just didn't think that the two things went together. And I think all of these things are barriers to people coming into the industry and also staying into the, in the industry. And at the moment, everyone's just like whinging, oh, we can't get staff, there's a staff shortage, it's so hard to find people. And I'm like, okay, but there's like a million things you could be doing better to attract people. And yes, it's not necessarily an instant solution to things. Um, But yeah, it, it is like people are just, it's almost like out of desperation they don't want to, you know, give their staff extra training and and extra responsibilities and extra things that they can learn and take onto their plate because they don't want them to think, okay, cool, I've learned all of what I can here. I'm going to go on to somewhere else. But actually, if everybody just did that, then there'd be all of these really well-trained, highly skilled, highly motivated people floating around the industry and you would kind of get back what you put in.
0: Yeah, even if it was with a different person. I mean, I think you touch on something so interesting and it's sort of that standard how we assume that it's going to be as bad everywhere as it is where we are. And I mean, this second restaurant I worked in in London, I cannot tell you how shocking it was when all of these things started coming to my mind about how fucked up my first situation was in that first restaurant I worked for in terms of pay, hours, expectations around labor. Like it was Unbelievable. And I look back at that experience now and I'm like, I, the gall, like the gall of them. And it feels so normal. And then you move somewhere else where the practice is different and you're like, oh, that was totally fucked up what I was in before. But I think it's also similar. Sometimes you hear about restaurants like through the rumor mill and it's like, oh, my God, did you hear that everyone gets their birthday off or like, did you hear that everyone gets three days off a week but can still pay their rent? Like you hear these sort of rumors, but from an operational perspective or from a management perspective, I hear about restaurants like that or I did when I was managing restaurants. And I was like, but how how do they do that? Like in practice and in terms of staffing, in terms of hours, in terms of service, like I'm like, how the fuck are they managing to do that? And I think that there is so. There's this competitiveness and this idea that, like, we don't want our dirty laundry aired. So I would never go to the manager of another restaurant and be like, listen, we're working our staff like dogs. Um, They're not getting paid enough. It seems that everyone here is happy. How did you do that? Because we all sort of go around being like, I treat my people so good. I treat my people so good, which you do on a personal perspective. But in terms of, well, God willing, if you're not a total, you know, Yahoo at your job, but... We do not cop to how bad the standards are, and therefore we cannot learn and we cannot grow. And I think that sort of explains a lot of why we're in the rut we're in.
1: Yeah, and do you not think that we see this quite a lot with Kelly's Cause, where we we go to businesses and we're like, you know, here's what we offer, and they're like, yeah, but you know, I already have an employee assistance program, I don't need this, or you know, my staff are all happy, I don't need this. And I'm like, you're actually blind. because an employee assistance program is great, but it's, it's completely different to mental health first aid training or anything else that we offer. And, and like, sorry, but all of your staff are definitely not happy the way that like, even if the working environment that you're providing is a happy environment, it doesn't mean that everybody's going to be happy. Like people are going to have other things going on in their lives. So being able to actually specifically focus on mental health and support the mental health of people. And also do something that I find, and this was something that um, a friend of mine came to me with, Um, That was happening in their restaurant where there had been an email that had been sent that was like basically putting all of the responsibility back on that individual person to look after their own mental health. And it was like, you know, I think there's a thing where people are always blaming what's going on outside of work if people are experiencing poor mental health, when realistically, a majority of the time, it's because of work. Or it's contributing.
0: It's a factor. It's never not part of the picture.
1: Yeah. And I, I think a lot of a lot of businesses um within the industry really fail and maybe it is like a maybe it is a, a pride thing, maybe it's like a survival thing. I don't know. But they do really fail to think, hang on a second, like maybe the environment that these people are working in or whatever it might be is actually contributing to them having a tough time
0: When i think of like the three things people talk about in terms of like what needs to improve and it's like wages work-life balance like toxicity or bullying culture i think what's interesting when those things get brought up is that they're so big the smaller we get the more practical we get the more success we have in turning the tide and even in terms of like if you're a people people (laughs) or a manager even or a supervisor have a team if you have the time, literally just two hours in your week where you have like open door and people can come and talk to you if they're in the shit or if they're having a hard time or if something's happened at work and to actually allocate that into your working day, can you imagine what a difference that would make to your workload if you weren't like emotionally managing like everybody's crises whilst you were trying to complete all your other tasks? And that isn't like changing the bullshit patriarchal toxicity. I can't do anything about that as an individual, probably nor can you unless you're some kind of wizard. So what are the actual things that we can change that will make a difference on the floor day to day in kitchens and for front of house staff? And I'm wondering what you see, because you talk to so many people in the industry, and you also talk to a lot of people who are struggling or who are dealing with staff that are struggling. What are like three practical things that you think can happen this week in a restaurant that will make a difference and shift the industry?
1: Genuinely think that one of the the biggest things that like managers and like team leaders and business owners and things like that can do is to be like vulnerable themselves because what like I spend a lot of like a lot of the training that I do is to management level not all of it and we always encourage businesses to send people from kind of all different levels but inevitably it does end up being a lot of like managerial staff and I always get asked like you know what's one thing I can do to help my team to open up to me and I'm like you can be vulnerable yourselves and like open up about how you're feeling. And if you're having a tough day or if you're, you know, perhaps having a tough time with your mental health or, or you're tired or you're emotional or you're overwhelmed or you need a day off for your mental health is like doing that and and practicing what you preach because like people really do like what what they, they do, not what they say. Like if you're like, you know, I'm really open and you can come to me and you can come to me with anything yet you're like a, a brick wall that doesn't give anything away, people are not going to want to come and talk to you about like what's going on and what they're feeling and their emotions and everything like that. So vulnerability is like the biggest thing. Um, I think the other thing is having, I think I, I really like what you say about having that kind of dedicated time and definitely the biggest, biggest barrier to people being able to, to provide a, like a mentally healthy workplace for their teams is time. Like we know we've worked in it. We know how hard it is. Um, but I think just, yeah, like taking the time and whether it's, you know, checking in with each individual member of your team every couple of months or something like that, or whether it's like having an allocated time every week or having a quick team meeting every week where people can kind of talk about things. But it's a lot, I think, to do with like structure as well. Like in other in other industries, you would have like, you know, a meeting where everyone sits down with, the, with their team every week and you get together and you talk about things. But it just doesn't happen in hospitality. Part of that is because it's like shift path. Patterns. so usually there's not a time you know when everyone works Monday to Friday nine to five it's easy to be like okay 10 a.m on a Monday morning we'll have a meeting um, another part of that is the fact that we are all understaffed and people um, can't take time out of the kitchen or prepping the floor for service or whatever it is but yeah I think I think having dedicated time to check in with your team is the other thing the wages thing is a really really difficult thing because financial security is is one of the biggest contributors to positive mental health, right? So it means that, one, you have less things to worry about. Two, unfortunately, it does mean that you have more access to things. Like, I'm in a very privileged position where I pay for therapy. If I had been on an NHS waiting list, I would probably still be waiting for that. Um, I have a number of, of friends who I know who are on waiting lists waiting for that. And it does mean, like, financial security means that you have access to more things that can help you look after your mental health. And also, just if you're working like sixty hours a week, you want to feel financially compensated for that appropriately. Like, right? Like, and and places that are trying to proclaim that they're looking after their staff and they're paying below London living wage, get fucked. Um, like, I just think that. Also, I I do also think a little bit that businesses, and, and so this is something interesting I read the other day, that was like, if you're a business owner and you can't afford to pay your staff what they deserve to be paid, that is your problem and maybe you shouldn't be running a business. And yes, I know it's really hard to make money in hospitality. I know it's really hard. I know margins are really tight. We've got to be getting people through the door. I know there's like a million hidden costs. But still, if you are not having a successful business model where you can afford to pay the staff appropriately for the work that they're doing, and I'm, I'm not talking like, you know, even just paying like London living wage, it's still ridiculous. You still have people in hospitality in like senior management roles on 30k a year. If they worked in any other industry in London, they would be on twice that. It is almost like this kind of cycle where the more that businesses invest in their staff and the more that businesses train their staff and look after their staff, the better those staff are going to be at doing the job, the more successful they're going to be, the more money the business is going to make. So I almost think it is like you have to make that investment first to kind of see that reward
0: i think that's totally accurate and like i remember this coming up all the time i always think about this example around smoothies which were always no matter where i worked my least favorite thing to sell and they would come to me and they would be like rachel your team has to push smoothies and i was like my team is squeaking by they're working more than full time and they're all broke they don't give a shit like Why are they gonna sell smoothies for you? There's no incentivization. Whereas like, if I come to you and I'm like, listen, you get paid a great wage. You have a normal amount of working hours. Everyone does their best to take care of each other here. We really need you to push smoothies so we can like keep this train on the track. I'm gonna be like, yeah, I'm gonna fucking sell some smoothies today. No bother. It always made me laugh so much when owners, managers, whatever, expected that everyone was really going to give a shit about the vision of a restaurant when, (laughs) like, they were near to cut off their legs and, like, they weren't making any money. And it's like, why do you think people are as passionate about whatever vision you have here to revolutionize, like, Australian brunch? I shouldn't say that. It's too specific.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Please leave that in. Please when
0: they can't take care of themselves, when they're in precarious financial positions, like you mentioned, when their mental health is suffering, when they're exhausted, when they don't know how they'd manage a crisis, whether physically, financially, whatever, how do you expect them to give a shit? It's such a massive gap, I think. And it is a situation where, and this happens, it's sort of a, obviously a product of capitalism but where people making decisions and then people executing those decisions their financial reality particularly in a place like london where in order to run a restaurant you have to have a lot of capital behind you and if you're working in one it probably means you don't it creates this division that's extraordinary and i don't think that it's inherently bad i just think it takes an effort to remind yourself of how bad poverty is for your mental health and if you're in a position where you're not struggling in that way, it's hard to realize why everyone is so stressed out at work or why people aren't giving 110% or why somebody didn't want to help you out and come in on that Sunday for, cause you needed an extra body. Like, Mm. and I think the more we understand how much those things impact mental health and how much mental health then impacts somebody's ability to show up and give 110%, the more qualified we'll be to rectify that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And like the first job, job I worked at, one of the owners used to come in in her like new designer outfit with her new lips done like all the time. And I'd just be like, if I figured out what I was actually earning per hour in <laughs> that job was like less than seven pounds an hour. Like it's not, it's not enough to live on. Like, like it was just, yeah, it was just ridiculous. And I always would just be like, why am I doing this? Like I am literally working my ass off with really no, like, no thank you, no nothing. And, like, that's not the reality of every place. Like, there are places that in London that I think do genu- gen- genuinely pay relatively well. But we also need to change, like, I was talking to someone and they were like, oh, it was like, Padella were looking for a new head chef. And the, the salary for that is like 50k, which I think should be a standard head chef salary. It is an incredibly stressful role. You have so much responsibility and pressure. You're managing a team. You're managing your kitchen team. You're also having to communicate with front of house, everything. We know how tough it is. And that, like, if you were in that, if you had that level of responsibility and you worked in, in finance or you worked in law or business, any other kind of business or industry, you would be on that much money. And someone was like, that's ridiculous. I can't believe they're paying that much. And I was like, we've actually become brainwashed and conditioned to think that, like, if you're on 30K plus, you're, you're like, you, good for you, like, well done. How lucky for you that you're earning that much money. And we need to, like, change the whole narrative around it.
0: In some senses, that's an unfair comparison because in industries where the profit margin is enormous, you have the freedom to do that. You have the capacity to do that. You know, people that run charities make less money or run non nonpro- Well, it depends on the nonprofit, but people that are working in social work, even at the very top in a management position, they're going to make less than somebody who's managing some like. I don't even know what the words are to be honest, but like some business that like does business, you know? And so there is a economic reality that I understand, but I think it really, and it comes right back and it comes back to also the work at Kelly's Cause where it's about how do we fix the minutia, right? And once you have it in your mindset that like there is little things we need to do to take care of these people, to churn the best profit, to like increase our margins, to be able to pay people enough money that they're not gonna have like poverty induced mental crisis, the minute that becomes part of the conversation in terms of staffing, in terms of retention, and in terms of how we set up sites, like that's that's the change that I'd like to see in the world. I realized I asked you this question and then I answered it myself.
1: I love that though, because actually you're way more intelligent and more on it than me. So really we should switch this around and I should be interviewing you.
0: Well, maybe for my second birthday, you can interview me when I turn two, okay? (laughs) You've been running Kelly's Cause for two years. What are you the most proud of?
1: One of my most proud things is having a team. It's so great having Rose and like we would be nothing without her. There would be no role for you and Sebastian to come into. Now being able to have a a full-time team is like something I'm so proud of and just has really made life so much easier and so much better. And- I mean, we've grown so much in the last couple of months. Probably another one of my most proud moments is when I do training with people who you can see at the beginning of training are like a bit prickly. You can see that they like that they're usually men, and they're usually a little bit older, although not always. And you can see that like they might feel a bit like, oh, why am I here or why do I have to do this or like mental health doesn't apply to me or all of these things. And then at the end of the two days, then just like you can literally see it change on their face over the two days. And by the end, they're like, they're softer, they're more open, they're smiling more. And they often come up to me at the end and they're like, You know, I really didn't think I was going to learn anything. But like you've some old guy was like, you have completely changed my outlook on my whole life. And I was like, wow, that is like pretty amazing. That's a
0: great thing to be proud of. You should be very proud of that. What for yourself, what is the biggest lesson you've learned personally? So not necessarily impact on others or something you're proud of on a foundational level. But for yourself, what do you know now that you didn't know two years ago when you were just grieving
1: and stressed out? If someone doesn't see your vision, just put them in the bin. I wanted to say yes to everything. I wanted every little bit of coverage. I wanted every new person who could possibly hear about us. And it put me in a position where I was saying yes to things that I really didn't want to do or people that I felt didn't like quite align, but I would be like exposure, exposure, exposure. I feel very happy that now I'm at a point where I can just say no and I can be like, here is our, our values and like we're very, very clear on those and very strict on those. And if what you do or whatever doesn't align with that, then you're not for us. So I think actually my biggest lesson is in being able to say no to things. Yeah. It's something I
0: find has been so – the thing that gives me like a super high in this job is when I get an email from a restaurant or from a chef or from a person that I respect – And we haven't reached out to them. And they randomly emailed like the hello inbox at Kelly's Cause. And they're like, hey, this is something we want to do. And I'm like, that to me is so indicative of the way the conversation around this is changing in the industry. Hand on my heart. Don't believe that four years ago, anyone thought about it.
1: No, they absolutely didn't.
0: And uh, I just want to congratulate you because I think that has a lot to do with the work you've done with Kelly's Cause. So congratulations and uh, happy birthday to the foundation, bud.
1: It is actually really, really good, isn't it? It, it, the conversation has changed so much. Like it's changed so much in the last, well, in the two years that we've been doing this and in the like nearly four years since I've had the idea for this and since Kelly died. So it has, it has really changed.
0: Well, now that we've um, praised you and also me and the great, the Lord's work that we're doing at Kelly's Cause Foundation, um, let's do some quick fire questions before we wrap up. Yes, Tell me, what's your favorite sauce?
1: My favorite sauce is ketchup. I literally ate it on my eggs this morning. Ketchup is probably the only thing I eat every day.
0: So Australian. (laughs) Um, What's the best thing you've eaten in bread recently?
1: Um, The sandwich from Mondo Sando, which is in a pub in Camberwell. um, And it's the one with like freshly made spring rolls inside the sandwich. And it is like just supreme i'm salivating thinking about it. i might have to go and get one this afternoon it's so good what are you listening to um taylor swift re-releasing red obviously
0: (laughs) has that happened has it changed your whole day
1: i'm not even remotely ashamed or embarrassed to admit that i woke up at seven o'clock this morning and was like fuck, it's out. I need to listen to it. No, I didn't wake up at seven o'clock to listen to it, but I woke right, up at seven. Right, that would and be I'd, too much. <laughs> normally I would just try and go back to sleep, but I was like, oh, it's out. I can listen to it. And I've listened to it like nonstop.
0: I like it, that you opened your eyes and you thought to yourself, today there's something worth waking up for. Yeah,
1: I did. <laughs> and it wasn't this conversation with me, you know. <laughs> yeah.
0: um, one spice for life, what would it
1: be? I'm going to say actually cinnamon. Ooh, rogue, I know, right? Very but like, rogue. It, it's so good in so many things, like crumbles, desserts, all kinds of things, like smoothies. Um, but then also like curries and things like that and like lots of savory food as well. Honestly, a, a pinch of cinnamon or a cinnamon stick put in when you're like sweating your onions is for most things. Wow, chef, good answer. Fridge staple? Uh, really, really good, really salty butter. I'm proud to work for you. Um, (laughs) Who's your dream dinner guest? My dream dinner guest. I'm going to steal this from um, the answer that Ify gave when I interviewed her for the podcast, which is my parents when they were my age. And I just think that is like the best idea ever. Because like you think of your parents as their lives beginning when you're born and like you know them. But actually... If I could speak to my parents when they were like in their 20s, I would absolutely love that.
0: Um, Yeah, real shout out to Ify for the Ify Frederick of Chukus London for the best answer to that question we've ever heard. I get why you stole it. I think we all might. Although, I don't know, it's a bit of a mixed bag depending on your parents. But listen, I hope that I can come to that dinner because I feel like it would be an absolute hoot.
1: I feel like I could understand a lot more about them and also probably a lot more about myself if I met them when they were... My
0: absolutely what would you serve for dinner if you had to cook
1: <laughs> um your mum's tuna casserole <laughs> Yes. <laughs> no absolutely not okay rachel's rachel is obsessed with this tuna casserole that her mum makes that to me sounds like the most disgusting thing you could possibly imagine eating not to poo poo rachel's whole childhood because she obviously loves it <laughs> um but she can just I'll, I'll, in a second i'll get her to to describe it to you but i would i don't know what i would cook Something vegetarian because my dad's vegetarian. Tell us about tuna casserole. I can't give away my family's um, greatest secret, but I'll just say that it's,
0: if you like, uh, if you have a few tins of Campbell's mushroom soup kicking around, uh, a lot of cheese in your fridge and some low grade tin tuna, you're in for an absolute treat. <laughs> Tobes, thank you so much for coming on Beyond the Past for our bonus episode for Kelly Cause's birthday. Thank you. I just want to mention that we do have one last training coming up before the end of 2021, and there are a few spots left. If you want more information, you can email hello at com or also DM us on Instagram at Cause and get some people on board. I hope you enjoyed this bonus episode and be sure to wish us a happy birthday this weekend. Is that a wrap? Did we do it? I think so. I feel like I blacked out. I don't really know what we talked about, so that'll be a treat.
1: Right. <laughs> How fun. That's
0: absolutely hilarious. We're so okay. Very
1: professional.